This is tape number four in our six-tape series of verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Galatians. This tape corresponds to our old Life for Today tape number 105, and this is teaching through the book of Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. We're now about uh, halfway through the book of Galatians. We're actually, on this tape, we will uh, progress beyond that. But in the previous tape, we dealt with Galatians chapter 3, and in Galatians chapter 3, I spent uh, that entire hour and a half talking about this. It's just a tremendous passage of Scripture. Uh, He was very harsh, starting off talking about how that they had been bewitched, and, I mean, just took off the gloves and let them have it showed that Jesus was infinitely superior, uh, being justified to God or made righteous with God through faith in Jesus was infinitely superior than trying to earn relationship with God through our own performance. And he showed that in a number of ways. He went back to Abraham and used Abraham as an example and the promises made to him that it's only through faith that we can be the children of Abraham. And in the last part of this chapter, and especially the last verse, he drew the conclusion that if you belong to Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, showing that being an heir of God did not come through your physical lineage, not your genealogy, but rather whether you had the same faith as Abraham or not. When you put faith in Jesus, you become an heir of God. You are more the people of God than if you were physically born a Jew. And uh, these are some strong statements, but those are exactly the points that Paul was making in Galatians 3. So as we begin into chapter 4, he begins to say some things here relating uh, the uh, us serving God under faith and the Old Testament way of serving God under law. And he's talking about it in relationship to like a child being under tutors and governors, etc. This is actually a play on some of the things that he had said in the third chapter, so you need to keep that in mind and take this in context to get the full effect. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. And he's using a physical example here to make a spiritual point and drive home some things. So the point is, he's relating being under the law, trying to serve God under the law, to being immature, very similar to a child who relates to their parents, but they just are living under rules and regulations. And then he likens a person who has found the freedom in Christ through being justified just by faith in Christ to a person who is now a son that still has all of the rights and the privileges, the benefits, but now they don't have the restrictions. They're able to make decisions on their own. And so this is a, a tremendous comparison. He's basically saying that serving God under a law mentality, feeling that you have to perform and do this and this and this to earn God's favor is very immature, very similar to a little child. And uh, he contrasts that with the maturity and the freedom that comes through serving God just because you have related to God on the basis of faith in Christ. Now, this is not necessarily one of the points that he's making here. He's, If you take the entire book of Galatians in context, he certainly does make this point, especially in the fifth chapter. We'll be continuing on that on our next tape. But uh, one of the questions that come up as I say this is that people think, well, are you saying then that uh, if you're really mature in Christ that just all restrictions are removed, that you can do whatever you want to and that there's no consequences 
And they uh, reject that, saying, I just can't believe that kind of logic. Well, again, if you go back to the physical uh, comparison, a child is under all kinds of restrictions, and I mean paddled, spanked, disciplined, however you do it, for disobedience. And it's just constantly rules and regulations and don't do this and don't do this and don't do that. In contrast, an adult child, you know, somebody who's still the child of their parent, but they're now an adult, they have freedom to make their own choices. And they may do some things differently than what the parent wants, but as long as it's within certain parameters, they can do things and they can even make mistakes. But does that mean that they are free now to go out and just void all of these laws? The one that I used on the previous tape is talking about crossing the street. You may not get spanked or paddled, punished for it, but do you still just run out into the street? Well, not if you want to live very long. No, you still should perform, and you still should do some righteous things, but no longer are you doing it for the purpose of acceptance. Now you've got the superior knowledge. It's not a matter of whether God accepts you or rejects you. It's a matter of, I'm going to continue to pray and go to church and seek the Lord and study the Word and do the things that I should do, not because God demands it of me, but because if I don't do these things, Satan is going to take advantage of me. I'm going to keep my heart sensitive to God. I'm going to keep communing with the Lord, etc. And you do it. You still do the right things, but now you do it out of a total freedom and liberty because it's wisdom, and it, you can actually see the benefit to it. And if you fail to do it, you aren't going to fear punishment from God. You know, if an adult child fails to look both ways before they cross the street, and if they live and make it to the other side, they should take notice of that and say, hey, I'm not going to do that again. But they shouldn't fear that they're going to be punished. They already made it. You, they got by with it. But you shouldn't allow that to make you become complacent because it could lead to an accident later on. And so these are the points that he's making. See, that he's, he's using this comparison here in the first part of the fourth chapter, saying that if you're under the Old Testament law, if you've still got that type of mentality that I've got to perform to please God, then you're immature at the very best. And you are not experiencing the freedom and the liberties that belong to a full-blown heir, a son. And I don't think any of us in the natural would choose to go back to being a child with restrictions, making us choose what to eat, what time to go to bed, what we can do, what we can't do. I don't think anybody likes that, yet we recognize it's necessary and before we form our own value systems and stuff that we have to be controlled like that. But yet people don't like that kind of control. Nobody in the natural would go back to that. But Paul, in effect, is saying that you Galatians are going back into an infantile type of relationship with God where you just have to be told everything. You're denying, you're, you're bringing yourself under the dominion and control, the bondage of this Old Testament law, and you're totally missing all the privileges and benefits of sonship that is available. You know, this is amazing, but most Christians today are living under this immature type of relationship where they don't understand that God has placed within them a new born-again spirit that is able to flow and function without being regulated and controlled and dominated. If we would just allow our born-again spirit to begin to start controlling us instead of us trying to control it, we would be a lot better off. If people would just begin to start worshiping and praising God and accepting a relationship with God as an accomplished fact, not something that has yet to be accomplished, if we would just rejoice in that, our spirit would begin to start leading us into holiness. First John chapter 3, verse 3 says, Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. 
And so a person who really has the hope of the gospel on the inside of them seeks to live holy. And if we would allow our spirit to dominate us, it would produce holiness on the inside of us. But sad to say, most Christians have never graduated into this sonship that Paul is talking about. They're still living with that Old Testament mentality that is seeking to please God through their performance, and it's certainly not pleasing God, and it's oppressing them. So our sonship, these scriptures are making it clear that this is available to every born-again Christian. It's there, but it has to be received. Let me just say something right here that I really want you to listen to, because at first this may sound very uh, radical. But if you'll allow me to explain it, I believe that this will help you. You'll agree with it, and it will really make a difference in your life. God exists independent of what we think, who we think he is, and how we think he operates. I'm basically just saying that God existed before we came along, and whether our opinion of him is adequate or accurate or not, God is still who he is. Our thoughts of him do not lessen God, nor do they increase God. But here's the radical part. As far as your experience goes, you will only experience from God what you think of him, what you think he will produce, what you think he will do. Now, you understand what I'm saying? God is who he is regardless of what you think. But as far as your experience goes, you are only going to experience from God what you think about him. For instance... If a person does not believe that in the baptism of the Holy Ghost, a second encounter with the Lord beyond the initial forgiveness of sins where you are empowered with the Holy Ghost, and it's manifest by many gifts, one of which is speaking in tongues, if a person doesn't believe that, did you know it won't happen to you? It doesn't just come on you like a seizure. It's not something that automatically happens. It's something that has to be believed and received. So even though God is the baptizer in the Holy Ghost, and it is his will, and it's even a command not to be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, and God certainly wants to give that to every born-again Christian. If a person does not believe that, if they don't think that way, then even though God is willing and able, it will not happen in a person's life. They have to believe and receive. Another example of this is healing. It is God's will to heal every single person. But if a person doesn't believe that, if they believe that sometime God wants you to be sick, to teach you something, it's producing a good effect in your life, and on and on all of these reasons go. If a person believes that, then that's what you will experience. You will experience a lack of healing in your life because you have limited God through your thinking. So you see what I'm saying? Your thinking does not determine who God is, but it determines how you receive from God. In a sense, you could say it this way, that God is to you the way you think he is. Now, to you, God is going to still be who he is, but as far as your thinking goes, you can limit the Holy One of Israel. I believe it's Psalms chapter 75 that says that. You can limit him to your small thinking. So the reason I'm bringing this up is to say, that if we have not ever graduated into being a son of God, if we haven't seen ourselves as mature, as now having liberty and freedom, instead of God telling us what time we have to be in each night, it's our choice. But does that mean that we can just stay out all night every night, not without it taking a toll on us and paying a price? We now have the freedom, the liberty to do some things, but we still have wisdom. 
And so you need to do what's wise. But yes, you can stay out one time or you, you know, no longer are you under rules and regulations the way the Old Testament law is. See, if you haven't made this mindset change, if you are still trying to relate to God on, have I done everything right? He, I've got to do this. I've got to do this, 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 and all of these things. That's an Old Testament law mentality. That is immature, is what these scriptures are describing, and it's going to put you in bondage, take away your joy and peace. You will experience guilt and condemnation. We've already talked about that as one of the works of the law, etc. And you will blame it all on God, thinking, well, God is punishing me, and God's not answering my prayer because I haven't done this. So what you're doing, in a sense, see, you are experiencing the way you think God is. The guilt and the condemnation and the uh, lack of peace in your life and all of these things, you're attributing them to God. But the truth is that's not the true nature of God. God's not the one that's punishing you. You are doing these things to yourself. You're allowing Satan to come in. But you are going to you're going to experience that, and you're going to blame it on God and experience that uh, the way you think that God is. So it's very important we get an accurate opinion of God. And that's what Paul is attempting to do here to these Galatians. They had fallen back into bondage, and he's using some real simple illustrations here, saying that you're acting like a child. You're wanting to go back to the bottle. You're wanting to have somebody slap you and burp you and change your diaper and do everything for you instead of accepting the fact that, hey, you've now matured and that you've got a choice. You can make these choices. God's not going to get mad at you. But I guarantee you, he's not going to be the one to clean up the mess anymore. You know, this may be a little crude example, but when you were a child, you had to uh, have your diapers changed and all of these kind of things. At first, you didn't have that control of your body. But after a while, you gained control of your body, and you still had to be disciplined, sometimes spanked or rewarded or punished, whatever, to get you away from, you know, messing in your diaper and controlling yourself. And all of us that have had children have uh, become very... Uh, familiar with this process and how a child is certainly able to control himself long before he does and we actually have to be corrected etc well now that you're adults you have the freedom that i presume you could do that nobody's going to change your diaper for you uh you know you could go back to um, messing in your clothes all of the time but I don't think anybody in their right mind would go back to that. There are reasons for it. It's not that you're going to be punished now. It's not that you're going to be sent away from the table. It's not all of these kind of things. There are physical reasons. It's not enjoyable. Nobody would want to do that kind of thing. Now, I know that may sound crude to some people, but it's a very clear example that, hey, now that you're an adult, you're free to do whatever you want to do, I guess. But does that mean that you do things that at one time you were told not to do? Well, certainly not. There was wisdom in it. The Old Testament law commanded us to do the right things, but it just did it in a harsh, legalistic way, and there was a judgment and a punishment and a rejection associated with every time we fail. Under the New Testament, we're now free. You know, I don't have to do certain things to be accepted with God. I'm accepted with God through faith in Jesus. But do I go out and just violate all of the laws? Do I go steal and do I lie and do I commit murder and I do these things because I'm free? Certainly not. I would no more do that than that other illustration I was just using. I mean, it's 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 illogical. And yet every time you go to talking on grace, 
you have somebody bring this up as well. You're just encouraging people to go live in sin. No, I'm not. I'm just saying that there's a difference. Now, I'm not going to be punished. I'm not going to be sent to my room. I'm not going to be rejected. And yet, did you know that most Christians are still thinking that way? They're still relating to God as a little tiny child, fearing that God's going to reject them. God's not rejecting you. You don't have to read the Bible if you don't want to. Just go ahead and be spiritually dead. Go ahead and let your mind be polluted by the corruption of this world. God will let you do it, and he'll love you just the same. But you won't love God the same if you don't study the Word. And yet I can promise you that the vast majority of people in the body of Christ, probably the majority of people listening to this tape, study the Word because they feel, I've got to do it. God won't be pleased with me. God won't answer my prayers. How could I expect God to respond if I'm not studying the Word? You don't study the Word for God's sake. You study it for your sake. If you don't study the Word, you're you're not smart. You're ignorant. It's a mistake. But God loves you just the same. If you don't go to church, God's not going to reject you or punish you or fail to answer your prayer because you don't go to church. But your prayers may not get answered as well because you are sitting at home watching the boob tube or doing something else. Your heart's growing cold and hardened. You aren't operating in faith. You'll see that you don't get the same results, but not because God has rejected you, but because you are rejecting God. Your heart's becoming hardened. The scripture specifically says in Hebrews chapter 3, not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but exhort one another daily, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You need to get together with believers so that your heart will be sensitive to God, that you can hear God talk instead of the devil talk that we hear so much, and on and on. Boy, I could belabor that point. I know I talk about this all the time, but this is so simple, and yet the vast majority of Christians are missing this. Paul is is being very blunt here, and he's using an illustration to show that it's childish, it's infantile to try and relate to God on the basis of punishment and judgment. That is not what it is. That's the way the Old Testament law presented things, but under the New Testament, we are now sons instead of servants. He said here in this first verse that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed to the father. This word servant here is the same word that we talked about in chapter 3, verse 24. I'm not going to try and pronounce that Greek word, but it's talking about that you were under governors and under you know people that were constantly controlling you. You didn't have freedom. Basically, it's talking about like a slave. That it's serving God under a law mentality is like a slave-master relationship, not a son-father relationship. Now, Paul talked about being a slave to God, but it was a voluntary slave. It's not that God demands that. God, as it says right on down here in... Um, which verse is verse 6? It says, He sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That term, Abba, there, we'll mention that in just a moment, but that's an affectionate term like Daddy. God gave us this intimate, close, personal relationship. Now, out of, out of our own volition, Paul, and I think it's good for all of us to say that, well, we do have a closeness, and I take advantage of that, and we use and receive that intimacy with God. But at the same time, we recognize that he is absolute Lord. It is, I'll never violate that. I have voluntarily made myself a bondman, a slave to the Lord. But God redeemed me from that relationship. It's very similar to with me with some of my friends. You know, I have relationship with people. Matter of fact, I've used this just recently 
uh, talking about some close friendships. And I had people that wanted me to come to a person who is a minister very close to me and impose on them and do some things. And, you know, I have the freedom that my relationship with this other minister has given me that ability that I could technically do it. I have that freedom. I have that right. And I don't have any question but what this other person would accommodate me and do that. But, you know, I came to them and I said, look, I have a close relationship with this person. He would do anything for me and I would do anything for him. And they said, well, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Ask for this. Impose on them. And I said, but you know what? I would never use that right. I would never impose on this person for fear that I would damage that relationship. I want to be nothing but a blessing to this person. And I said, even though I've got the right to do it, I will not invoke that right unless it was something that was super serious. I just would not do it. I would never impose on a person. And I think that that is a a godly kind of way. I think that's the ethical type of thing. In other words, you just don't misuse friendship. You value it. You put a price on it. And there's times that, yes, you need to take advantage of it, but you certainly never abuse it. Well, see, it's the same thing. We have a close, intimate relationship. God has promised that he'll do anything that we ask. But at the same time, I do not uh, take advantage of that. I don't misuse it. I don't use God for selfish purposes. I voluntarily come back and say, God, I know that you said that you'd supply all my needs. You give me anything I ask for. But I don't go out and ask for things just so I can consume it on my lust. I don't use God like a grocery cart in selfish ways just to go up and down the aisles of heaven and get my own needs met. And I don't see. I, I believe that these are some of the things here that Paul is talking about. We just are, we are voluntarily bond slaves to the Lord, but actually we have this close, intimate relationship that no longer is acting as a slave. Uh, God has granted us that right. In verse 3, he says, Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. This is, again, talking about back when we were trying to relate to God under a law mentality, performing earning God's grace and favor before the revelation of relationship with God by faith was made clear. He's likening that to when we were, you know, like slaves and we were in bondage under the elements of the world. I don't know how much clearer you can get. Paul here is talking about a works mentality, a law mentality as being bondage. Very clear statement. And, you know, most people in the body of Christ today could admit that there's tremendous amount of bondage. They don't experience the complete benefits and freedom of their relationship with God. Instead, they're they're serving like a slave relationship. They don't have this closeness, and it's because of a law mentality. It says that we were in bondage under the elements of the world. The Revised Standard Version translates this phrase by saying we were slaves to the elemental spirits of the universe. And, you know, if this is an accurate translation, then it's talking about that the demonic powers and spirits that were functioning in our lives before we came to Christ, you know, that they were uh, having dominion over us. And uh, he's likening a person who's under the law to a person who's like that, still in bondage to the spirits of this world. The law can tell you what you should be doing. It can give you a standard, but it had no power whatsoever to free you 
On the other hand, true Christianity, where you just put faith in the Lord and receive relationship with God by faith, it puts within you a brand new spirit. And as it says over in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, it says, Greater is he, or excuse me, that's the one that says, This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. But in chapter 4, I forget which verse it is, I think it's verse 3, it says, Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Might be verse 4. So when you get born again, God actually makes you superior to the devil. You have an authority and a power that's greater than him. So see, this is one of the major differences, again, between the law and grace. The law told you what you should do, but it was powerless to help you accomplish that. It could not break the demonic hold that was over you. But grace not only has a standard of what's right and wrong, but it empowers you to do it. It delivers you from the power of the devil, gives you a superior power and authority. So if you are under a law mentality where you're trying to serve God by your own works, you are going to be frustrated. You're going to have this constant standard of what should be done, but you're going to be powerless to accomplish it. When you're under grace and you just start saying, Father, thank you that I'm acceptable to you, even though I'm not performing everything perfectly, well, that kind of thing will release the power of God on the inside of you, and it will give you power over the elemental spirits of the universe, or, as the King James says, over the elements of the world. It'll break that. You have a superior power. Well, that's awesome. In the uh, fourth verse, it says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might be uh, receive the adoption of sons. This phrase here, when it says, when the fullness of time has come, I believe is important. Because, you know, I'm, I've talked to a lot of people that don't think this way. Many people have never had this question. But personally, I have wondered, why did God wait nearly 4,000 years after the fall of Adam to send Jesus into the earth? During that previous 4,000 years, you know, there was a lot of people that were suffering under all of the dominion of Satan. And the New Testament makes a great contrast that now that Jesus has come, this second covenant is infinitely greater than the first covenant known and on. The benefits of having Jesus and being born again are just infinitely superior to the Old Testament. So why did God wait 4,000 years? See, those are kinds of questions that I ask. And um, I've got an answer to it. I can't give you all of it right here. I've got a two-tape series on authority of the believer that will go into that and explain it. Also, a tape kind of summarizes that entitled Cause and Effect, or God's Word, the Incorruptible Seed. All of those tapes deal with this same thing. But there was a reason that Jesus came when he came. See, that's what this verse is saying, when the fullness of time was come. One of the uh, translations here uh, says that it means that when the right time came, and, you know, uh, that's the simple English Bible. The NIV says when the time had fully come. In other words, this is pointing out a specific time. The appearance of Jesus on the earth was not random. It was not haphazard. Jesus came at the earliest possible moment that everything was ready. It's like a woman having a child. You know, there is a full term. You might could have come previous to that, but it wouldn't have been complete. At the first time that it was everything was ready, Jesus came into this earth. And I believe that that's very significant. For me, that answers some questions. There were things that had to take place prior to the incarnation of Jesus here on this earth. The Lord sent Jesus as soon as it was possible. 
And to me, that answers a lot of questions. It shows that God was righteous. He was not just uh, wasting time and letting people under the old covenant suffer with him being indifferent to their needs. No, the Lord was working to bring Jesus into manifestation. And at the you know earliest possible moment, he came. The word fullness, according to the New American Heritage Dictionary, it literally means the maximum or complete size, amount, or development. Developments had to take place before Jesus had come, and they just weren't ready yet. And so Jesus came at the earliest possible moment. Notice also here in this fourth verse, it says that God sent forth his son. In other words, God did not create his son. You'll hear some cult groups talk about that Jesus began, his life began when he was um, conceived by the Virgin Mary. But no, he was already God. He was pre-existent. Colossians chapter 1 makes quite a bit of information about that. The worlds were created by Jesus. So Jesus existed before he came here to the earth. He existed as God the Son. And when he came here to the earth, he was born of a woman, but that was not the beginning of his life. This is critical to understand this uh, so that you ascribe divinity to the Lord Jesus. Jesus is God, and he was manifest in the flesh. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. So it's important that you notice the wording here. This is a very subtle mention of the fact that Jesus was God and uh, divinity. He did not begin his life when he was conceived by the Virgin Mary. So God sent forth his son, made of a woman. Again, this is in reference to the virgin birth. And this is critical. I've got footnotes where I've already explained this, talking about how the virgin birth is essential to understanding the deity of Jesus. And the last phrase here, it says, made under the law. It's important. As he's talking here about us being redeemed from the law, it's important to recognize that Jesus literally became flesh, and Jesus became subject to the law, to all of the rules and the regulations. Now, Jesus had a righteousness with God, because he was God. It was an inherited righteousness. But when he became flesh, he literally submitted himself to that law, and he kept every precept of the law flawlessly. And then he took our punishment for us breaking the law into his own body, and he became a curse for us, as it taught in Galatians chapter 3, and he redeemed us out from under the law. He could not have done this if he was not made of a woman, if he hadn't become physical, flesh and blood, and he could not have done it if he hadn't have been under the law. Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are. He knows what it was like to be tempted with sin. He knows what it was like to be under the bondage, the rules, the regulations of the law. And so he has redeemed us perfectly. He has perfect understanding of the things that we're going through in this area. And that's what Paul is referring to here. That when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of of sons. In verse 5, the purpose of Jesus coming to this earth was to redeem us. Praise God. The word redeem, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce this Greek word, but it literally means to buy out of the slave market. And again, he's continuing this illustration about being under the law, having a law mentality where you relate to God on how well you conform to some standard of right and wrong. If you've got that law mentality, you're like a slave. You're like a child that's just constantly being told what to do and what not to do and punished and corrected. And it says that Jesus bought us out of that slave market. 
He redeemed us out of this bondage to where we're no longer slaves, but now we're sons. We have freedoms, liberties, privileges that a slave does not have. Praise God. Boy, this is a powerful illustration. But notice, he didn't only redeem us, he redeemed us. That means he bought us out of this slave relationship. But it says that the adoption, that we might receive the adoption of sons. See, the Lord didn't re- just redeem us from something, he redeemed us unto something. And again, this is showing that there are, it's like two steps to salvation. We are redeemed from punishment. We are redeemed from correction and wrath and rejection. We are redeemed from slavery, bondage to laws and rules and regulations. If that's all the Lord had provided for us, that would have been wonderful. But the Lord provided much, much more than that. He brought us out of that bondage into a relationship with God. In other words, if you could imagine a slave right now just being let go and being uh, taken out from under the whip and the slavery and the bondage and the work, the performance, all of the restrictions that go along with slavery. Being set free would be wonderful, but wouldn't it be infinitely more if they were not only set free but made the heir of the master, of the owner, the heir of all of the money, the heir of all of the rights and privileges? See, it's, that's much, much greater. And that's what the Lord did with us. He didn't only redeem us from sin, from its bondage and its punishment, but he actually put us into relationship with him. But sad to say, many people today are not enjoying the relationship, the union with Christ that we really have available to us. They're looking at salvation as nothing but forgiveness of sins, and that's not so. It's much, much, much more than that. So we are not only redeemed out from under the bondage of the law, but we are redeemed into sonship. And we don't need to stop short of that. It's all a package deal. God never intended that just a few people take advantage of the full benefits of our inheritance. No, he wants all of us to do that, but it has to come by faith. It goes on to say in the next verse, it says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You know, one of the benefits of salvation is certainly having the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I've mentioned this in the past. I I hadn't got time to go into all of that. But, boy, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the difference between just being forgiven, but then kind of on our own, and, and then being forgiven and having God literally indwell us to where God's Spirit, the mind of Christ, the wisdom, the anointing, the power of God, and on and on, all of the things that the Holy Spirit brings to us, to have that actually residing on the inside of us is just amazing. Any person who is talking about being bored or being depressed or being discouraged just really has not understood their inheritance. I mean, you go on in the next verse. It says in verse 7, Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Any Christian who is talking about being depressed and lacking hope and all of these things, I can promise you they are not meditating on what God has really given us. They have this mindset that all we are is forgiven, but they don't see themselves as a true heir of God. Any person who had a revelation about what it means to have God himself live on the inside of you, we are recipients of God's Spirit. And then all of the power, the anointing, 
the wisdom, all of the things that are laid up for us in the future, as it says in John chapter 14, that in my Father's house are many mansions, and that he's going to prepare a mansion for us, and he'll receive us to himself and take us to that mansion. If you go to thinking about the wonderful things that God has prepared for you, it's just inconceivable. It's incompatible for that uh, to dwell with depression, boredom. Lack of hope. It just doesn't exist. A person who is experiencing those kind of things is a person that either doesn't have a revelation of their inheritance with the Lord or they have set it aside and they're just being dominated and controlled by their physical circumstances. I mean, we have a tremendous thing here. This this is just amazing that God would call us sons. It would be wonderful for God just to redeem us and have mercy on us. But then to exalt us to the position of actually being a son is beyond imagination. If you really thought about that and got a true revelation of it, boy, the liberty, the freedom that that would bring to you would be awesome. Also, look in the sixth verse. It says that he has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The word Abba here is an Aramaic word. It was used by Jesus in Mark 16:36. And it's uh, what we would use today. It's it's like a term, daddy. It's an affectionate, intimate term. It's not like father, which is fairly formal. It may uh, suggest a relationship, but this is specifically emphasizing the intimacy of the relationship. It's like saying daddy. And again, this is so much greater of a redemption than what most Christians have realized. God didn't just pity us and therefore redeem us from hell and from his punishment. But he he loved us so much that he redeemed us from those things and then brought us into intimacy with him, so much so that the Holy Spirit is trying to speak through us and draw us into a close relationship where we can actually call God our daddy. And that is not disrespectful. I mean, that is the highest respect. I mean, to take advantage of that closeness and that intimacy pleases God. You know, I've, extend, I've extended friendship to people before that just honestly, um, they didn't feel like they deserved it. You know, I, I just out of the goodness of my heart have wanted to do things for people. And there, I've had people come to me before and say, well, you've given tapes to me and you've done things for me and I'm the one that owes you. But I want to buy their meal for them or do something. And... Um, I've had some people just balk at that and say, no, I'm the one that owes you. You can't do anything for me. I've got to do something for you. Well, sometimes I'll let people because they really feel like they need to do something. But, you know, there's just sometimes that I really want to bless a person. Say they've been discouraged or financially they need help, and I just want to bless them. And, uh, you know, there's times that actually it grieves me to see that people will not let you bless them. They won't let you give to them. They won't let you extend friendship to them because, oh, no, I just couldn't ever impose on you. I couldn't. I don't deserve this. But then on the other hand, I've seen people that it was hard for them, but they humbled themselves and they said, well, if you really want to do it, I'll receive it. And, you know, that blessed me. I enjoyed that. I liked it. And I believe it's the same thing with God. Certainly, if we just based it on performance, none of us deserve intimacy with God. But nonetheless, the Holy Spirit has been sent into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. He's trying to bring us into that relationship. And it actually takes faith for us just to humble ourselves and say, well, I know I don't deserve it in myself on my performance. But since God wants it, I will come into this relationship. And we, by faith, begin to say, Father, I believe you're my daddy. 
and we start relating to him in that intimacy and in that closeness, I guarantee you it takes faith, and faith is what pleases God. That pleases God to see us humble ourselves and take advantage of things like that. And these are the points that Paul is bringing out here. In verse 8, Paul said, How be it then, when ye knew not gods, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. Now what he's doing here is referring to before they were born again, uh, they were idol worshipers, and they were serving them like a slave. It was back to this slave relationship. In verse 9 he says, But now after that ye have known God, or rather have known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? So what Paul is doing is, is now likening their turning back to the Old Testament law to idolatry. It's very similar in a lot of ways. For instance, in idolatry, there's all kinds of rituals, legalistic, liturgical type of things that you have to go through to appease these quote-unquote gods. Well, in law mentality, it's the same thing. Man, there's so many observances. In the idol worship, you know, the gods are always wrathful, angry gods, and you have to do things to appease them and to earn their favor. If you don't, uh, doing nothing will always incite wrath. Well, you'll find out that legalistic people who preach law and judgment and that you've got to perform, it's a very similar type of mentality. So Paul here is likening going back under the law to idolatry. Some strong, strong statements. I tell you, Paul isn't pulling any punches in, uh, in these passages of Scripture. He also said here that how you turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements. Notice that he's describing the law, and that's what he's talking to. He's talking to these Galatians who had gone back under the law. These aren't people who had actually renounced their faith in the Lord and gone back to idolatry. They had gone to Old Testament Jewish law. They were trying to live under certain commandments, specifically circumcision and other commandments, and he lists some in the very next verse. They were living by these things, thinking that their performance and adherence to this gained them favor to the Lord. Uh, to the Lord, and so he's likening uh, the law here to being a weak and a beggarly thing, and it really is in the sense that it's totally inadequate. It'll give you a standard, but it doesn't empower you to live by that. You know, the same Greek word that was translated weak here was also translated feeble, impotent, sick, without strength, and that's exactly. What it's talking about. The word beggarly was translated poor 30 times in the New Testament. The law is poor. And I know some people by that may think that, man, I'm against things that God had done. No, God used the law for a period of time, but he admitted in the third chapter that it was only temporary. And because of the weakness of our flesh, it very it was inadequate. It was weak and unprofitable because of our own flesh. The law itself was spiritual and fine, but our own weakness made the law weak. You know, it's like we were one of the links in a chain. The law was dependent upon us, upon our performance. And even though the law may have been a huge chain, like an anchor uses on one of these big old ocean liners, we were the ones that had to grab hold of it and make it work. And we were the weak link in that chain. And because of our weakness, you know, a chain is no stronger than its weakest link. Our weakness made the, the law weak because it was dependent upon us and upon our performance. And so in those senses, it was weak and it was beggarly. In its proper place, the law is good if it's used properly. 
But when you attempt to mix it with the gospel and use the law as a means of producing justification, then it becomes totally inadequate, weak and beggarly. And that's what he's talking about. He says, this is like you going back into idolatry. Why do you want to go back to this kind of mentality? Why do you want to do something like that when you've already experienced the freedom that's in Christ? He said in the last part of the ninth verse, it's like you going back to bondage. In verse 10, he says, you observe days and months and times and years. Now, what he's referring to here, again, is not some pagan practice, but he's going back to Old Testament law. These people were falling back into legalism. And what he's talking about when he says that they observe uh, days, he's talking about the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was commanded under the New Testament. We have been redeemed from that bondage. Now, if anybody's listening to this tape and that sounds like heresy, if you haven't heard this in its entirety, you need to go back to John 15:16. I have a footnote number one there that will talk about the Sabbath and that it was only a picture of things to come. That's what it says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. It also says they were going back to observing months. You know, in the Old Testament, there was months, new moons, and uh, certain things like that that they had to observe, and they had to uh, offer sacrifices every new moon and all of these kind of things. He says if you're doing these kind of things, you're going back into bondage. goes on to say, and times and years. This is talking about that there were certain feasts, such as the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Passovers, First Fruits, etc. And these things were commanded under the Old Testament. These legalistic Jews were going back to how they had to keep the Passover, and if they didn't keep the Passover, that they weren't pleasing God. Again, the Scripture says in Colossians 2, 16 and 17 that all of these things were only pictures, symbols, types of New Testament realities. A person who's experienced the baptism of the Holy Ghost is living in Passover. Uh, excuse me, that's Pentecost. A person who's experienced salvation is living in the Passover. And a person who's experienced, you know, all of these feasts were symbolic of New Testament realities. Hebrews chapter 4 makes a big point of talking about that the Sabbath was a picture of a relationship that is now available in Christ. I have a tape on this entitled Our Sabbath Rest, and it will show you this. If a person is trying to adhere to the observance of some day, withdrawing themselves from certain activities and somehow or another honoring one day above another and think that by doing that they are keeping the Sabbath, they are not keeping the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a picture of now a relationship that is a reality in Christ. Why would you want to look at a picture if you have the real thing? You know, if you'd never seen me before and if somebody showed you a picture of me, well, it might have some benefit to it. And you might want to put it on your calendar or on your bulletin board so that if you see me, you'd recognize me, etc. But if I was there present with you, why would you want the picture anymore? The picture was only a representation of me. That would be like a person, you know, saying, oh, I love this picture. And then their sweetheart walk in the room and they've got the real person, but they're still in love with the picture, not the person that was represented by the picture. Well, we just don't relate to that. Say that'd be crazy. Well, that's what it is when people are worshiping and trying to honor the symbolism instead of the reality. The Sabbath was only symbolic of a New Testament reality that now is ours in Christ. Again, please take advantage of that tape on uh, our Sabbath rest if you'd like to get that answered. In verse 11, he says, I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Now, this raises some questions that really I hadn't got time to answer. This could take an hour and a half, two hours to deal with this one thing. 
But this sounds like he's saying that these people, uh, he's in doubt whether they're really saved or not. Now, we know that they were born again because Paul is the one that brought the gospel to him, and he's already talked to them in this epistle as believers. And he even goes on later and talks about how that I believe, I'm confident that you will not be any otherwise minded, that you are, you're going to hold fast to your profession in faith. So it's, conf- it's evident from the context of this epistle and other things that these were believers. And yet here's Paul saying, I'm afraid of you unless I've bestowed upon you labor in vain, unless, you know, you renounce your faith. So this raises a question. Can you be saved and then lost? You know, there's quite a controversy in the body of Christ over that, and I haven't got time to answer it right now. But just let me say that I believe it's possible to be saved and then renounce your salvation. It's not just automatic that you keep it. But I don't believe you can send it away. I don't believe that you lose your salvation, a common terminology that we use. In other words, you can't lose your salvation because of some failure on your part, because of some sin, because of something that you say or do. But you could literally renounce your salvation. In other words, you have to maintain that salvation by faith, not by performance. And I know that this isn't a complete answer, and some of you may really get upset. This is a very volatile issue. It's a controversial issue. I encourage you to get this tape that I have entitled Security of the Believer, and it will explain that and deal with it. But Paul here is basically, by him expressing concern about these people, whether they were really born again, whether they were going to continue on or not, or whether his labor among them was in vain, it brings up a point and it shows that it's not just an automatic thing. Once you get born again, that you always remain that way. There is some cooperation on our part. In verse 12, he says, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are, you have not injured me at all. So basically here what he is telling these uh, Galatians is, he says, I wished you were like me because I'm free. I'm walking in liberty and I've experienced a relationship with God that is close and intimate where I literally can call God my daddy. And he says, I want you to be like that. And he says, really, you are like that. It's available. It's available to every person who's born again. But he says, I'm praying that you would experience this, that you would take advantage of it. And he says, you have not injured me at all. In other words, Paul basically is saying, hey, I could walk away from this thing. I know who I am. I know what relationship I've got. The reason I'm spending so much effort with you and bearing my heart unto you, as he said, you know, my, our, uh, we are not straightening ourselves, but our heart is opened unto you. You're straightened in your own bowels. He said that over in Second Corinthians uh, when he was talking to a different group. The reason Paul was going to this effort to minister to the Corinthians wasn't because of his own personal loss. It was because he loved them, and he could see that they were going to experience tremendous loss if they went back under the law and under bondage. So he's saying, you haven't injured me at all. I'm still the same. I know who I am. It's not for my sake I'm saying this thing. I'm saying these things for you. He was going to continue on in the grace of God regardless of what they did, but he wanted to bring them with him. He wanted them to experience the blessing and the fullness that he was experiencing. In the next verse, he says, You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation which was in my flesh you despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness you spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them unto me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? 
Now, I'm going to slow down and go through some things here because um, there are some people that have taken these passages of Scripture and have misused them to actually teach that Paul had some chronic sickness, specifically an eye problem, and they have linked this together with 2 Corinthians chapter 12 to say that this was Paul's thorn in the flesh. So I want to deal with some things and refute that. But let me just say, before we lose our train of thought, let's look at this in context. He had been talking to them, and he says, you have not injured me at all. I'm still going on with God, and I'm going to continue in the grace of God, but I want you to experience this. And so so what he's doing here in verses 13, 14, and 15, he's reminding them of the affection that they had for him when he first came and preached the gospel unto them. And he's putting them back into remembrance that, man, they loved him so much that when they saw him with some type of physical problem here, they would have been willing to pluck out their own eyes and give it to him. In other words, they just loved him to the a demise of their own physical well-being. They'd have done anything for him. And he says, where's this blessedness then you spoke of? Where is this love that was once extended towards me? He says, how could you reject me and reject the gospel that I brought to you and turn back to some beggarly, weak uh, bondage that you're going back into? Again, he's he's spoken unto them the word of God. He's used scriptural uh, basis on them. He's used logic on them. He's made comparisons now. He's going right to their emotions and saying, what about me? Don't you love me? How could you still say that you love me and reject everything that I've taught you and everything that I've said? It's just Paul, once again, trying to bring them back under their senses. And he's uh, touching their emotions and reminding them of the love and the communion that they had at one time. So in context, that's what he's saying. But let's go into some things right here. In verse 13, he says, You know how I through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. Now this word infirmity, if you would go back and look at Second Corinthians chapter 12 where I taught on Paul's thorn in the flesh, I've mentioned some of these things. But when the word infirmity was used in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I don't believe it was talking about a physical sickness. And I based that on 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I believe it's verse 30, where it says uh, that he was glorying in the things concerning his infirmities. Infirmities in that context is talking about his hardships, things that he suffered for the cause of Christ. And I'm not going to explain that any further. I've already dealt with that. But in this case, I believe that infirmity here is talking about some physical problem. And I'm based that on just the context of the statement. He's talking about some infirmity of the flesh. In other words, this isn't an infirmity of the soulish realm or of the spiritual realm. This is talking about something physical in his body, some type of inadequacy, lack, sickness, or disease, or pain, or something like that. And that's the way that he came unto them at the first and preached the gospel. And he says, in my temptation, which was in my flesh, once again, underscoring that this wasn't emotional or spiritual, this is something physical, they didn't despise him. Apparently, this must have been uh, offensive. It must have been grotesque looking, whatever it was. They didn't despise him or reject him, but they received him as an angel of God. In the 15th verse, it says, if they would have been possible, they would have plucked out their own eyes and have given them unto him. So this is talking about some physical problem that Paul had. And in verse 15, it mentions that they would have plucked out their own eyes. From this, some people have speculated that this means that he had an eye problem. And then they put this together with the sixth chapter where it says, you see how large a letter I've written unto you. And they say that Paul wrote in three and four inch high letters because he had such bad eyesight. He couldn't write normal. He had to write huge letters. 
Now, I tell you, this is beyond logic to think that anybody could take these passages of Scripture and come up with a doctrine like that. I tell you, if you tried to substantiate any other truth from the Word of God and base it on something as skimpy as that, nobody would accept it. That is not sound biblical interpretation. For one thing, when it says that he wrote a large letter, I believe that it's not talking about the individual letters that make up a word, but he's talking about this entire epistle. The, the letter or the epistle to the Galatians. It occupies three or four pages, single space, type written in a Bible. That is a large letter by anybody's standard. And if you just looked at it logically, how could anybody write a letter that is four, five, six pages, type written, single spaced? How could a person put that much down if every letter was three or four inches high? He had had to have sent along a stack. He had had to hire some kind of a wagon to carry that kind of a letter. That is not what this is talking about. Somebody says, well, he did mention that he had an eye disease. It did not. It just said there was an infirmity in his flesh, and it and it mentions that if it would have been possible, they would have plucked out their own eyes. This is very similar, I believe, to a person today saying, I love this person so much, I'd give my right arm for him. Does that mean that the person they love has a bad right arm? No, it's a figure of speech that just says that I love them so much that if they needed anything, not something insignificant, but even if it was something like an arm, I'd give my arm for them. I'd actually surrender a part of my body because I love them so much. That's exactly the way that we use that today. I believe that that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. This doesn't necessarily mean that his problem was with an eye. It just is underscoring that they loved him so much they'd have even given one of their eyes for him. But let's say this. Let's say that his infirmity here was something wrong with his eye. Does that mean that this is some chronic sickness that God would not heal him of? Well, there's certainly no way that you could get that out of this passage of Scripture. A person would have to already be predisposed to believe that. They would have had to already form a doctrine and simply come to this passage of Scripture and pick it out of context and then use it to verify a preconceived idea. This verse does not say that. And I don't believe that Paul's thorn in the flesh was sickness. Again, I refer you back to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 where I taught on that. But if you'll remember... Galatia is the name of a region. There was a number of cities in it, three of which were Lystra, Derby, and Iconium. Paul preached there. And in the 14th chapter of Acts, it talks about him preaching in that area. And Paul was left, uh, stoned and left for dead. I believe it was in Lystra. And he was so close to being dead that if he wasn't dead, the people who tried to kill him thought he was dead and left him for dead. And they drug him out of the city and just threw him down on a trash heap. And the disciples stood round about him and prayed for him, and he rose up. And then the next day he walked into the next city and preached. Now, if he wasn't dead, I personally believe that he was, and he was raised from the dead. But if he wasn't dead, he was so close to it for, through a stoning that is it inconceivable to believe that possibly he had a runny or a puffy eye? Was it is it inconceivable to believe that if a person had just been stoned the day before that his eye may have been swollen shut? I, I believe that that is very logical. And see, here you have some scriptural basis. You can say with authority that when Paul came to Iconium that he was suffering the effects of having been stoned and left for dead. 
And it is not illogical or unreasonable to suppose that there was physical problems with his body, even with his eyes, that were a result of that stoning, not a result of some chronic sickness that persisted and that God wouldn't heal him of. People have taken scriptures like this and have gone back and have found out that during that time there was some kind of an ancient Aramaic disease that that caused runny, puffy, swollen eyes. And they have likened that to Paul's thorn in the flesh. And people actually teach that. I tell you, that is straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. The scripture teaches us that he was stoned and left for dead. It is very logical to believe that something was wrong with his eyes as well as other parts of his body. He could have looked like a bloody bloody nub when he came and preached to these people. And Paul is just reminding them about this adversity that he had and saying, where's this love that you had for me? At the time you loved me so much, you would have plucked out your own eye and have given it to me. That does not mean that this is something that persisted. It does not mean that this was his thorn in the flesh. This is just a reference to the effects that his physical body had from a stoning. And Paul is using that as an example to remind them about the love that they had for him at one time and trying to bring them back to that place to where in love they submit to him and to his advice. And in verse 16, he says, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? In other words, he knows that by reminding them, he may have made them mad. Have you ever talked to your mate or to anybody else? And as you're in an argument or a disagreement over something, you go back and remind them of something that they said at one time. You go back and remind them of how they complimented you or said something nice about you, and now they're critical. Have you ever done things like that? And the purpose of doing that is to say, hey, why have you changed? At one time you loved me. At one time you accepted me. At one time you said it was okay to do such and such, etc. Well, when you do that, lots of times you'll find that other person saying, don't try and twist my words. Don't remind me of that. That was then. This is now, etc. The point that I'm getting across is it's usually not well received. Usually when you start using a person's own words and own commitments against them to sway them from the position that they're advocating at that moment, it usually is not a very uh, good reaction to it. And this is basically what Paul's getting at. He says, am I become your enemy? Because I told you the truth. Uh, He's just saying, calm down. He says, are you upset with me because I'm telling you the truth? Boy, the applications of this are awesome. I've used this scripture a lot of times talking to people when somebody begins to start getting upset. I've quoted this scripture, and I tell you, that's not always the best scripture to quote because that can incite them even further. But, you know, it really is a true statement. A person should not be upset with you when you're telling them the truth. It's love to tell a person the truth. It really is. And yet the truth is that many times people don't want to hear the truth. They want to hear what they want to hear. They've already got an opinion, and all they're doing is wanting somebody to agree with them. They don't want you to come along and tell them, tell them the truth. Welcomed, but it's always needed. You know, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall in any wise rebuke him and not suffer sin upon him. In other words, that scripture is saying that if you don't tell a person the truth and rebuke them and allow them to sin, then you hate them in your heart. The positive side of that is if you really love a person, you'll tell them the truth. You know, if you could imagine right now a person, you know, on a dark, rainy night coming to a bridge and that bridge is washed out and maybe they just barely saved their life. They nearly went over the edge and then they see other cars coming. 
you know, it would be love to stop those other cars. But in our day and age which we live, if a person on a dark, rainy night was out there flagging down cars and stopping them on the road, uh, could you imagine some of the possible scenarios? I mean, there might be a woman there that sees a man flagging her down and trying to stop her. I guarantee there's a lot of them that would be immediately suspicious of the motives. They would fear whether this guy is going to try and accost them, you know, and and there could be people that take offense at it. There could be negative reactions. But if the person, if the man really had a love for other people, he would suffer their criticisms. He would persevere beyond them. He would persist beyond them. And he would do what he had to do. If he had to throw himself out in front of the car, or throw something else, or build a barrier, even if it offended people, if it made them mad at first, you would do what you had to do because it was such a life and death issue. Well, see, it's the same thing. Sharing your faith about the gospel, telling people the truth. Sure, you're going to offend people sometimes, but if you really love them, you're going to do what you can. You may not be able to ultimately dictate or control their response, but you need to at least get your message across. And that's what Paul is saying. He was speaking the truth, and uh, he says, Am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? In the next verse, verse 17, it says, They zealously affect you. The they that it's talking about is, once again, in context, talking about the Judaizers, which are the legalistic Jews who are teaching that you could not have relationship with God without keeping the Old Testament law and all of its do's and don'ts. It says, They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. Now, this is Old English, and basically, uh, let me just read to you what the NIV says, how they translated this. I think it's still preserving the same uh, spirit, the same meaning. The NIV says, These pe- Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. And I believe that that's what this is talking about. It also goes on to say in um, this 18th verse, uh, the NIV says, It is fine to be zealous, providing the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. The simple English translation says, It is good for people to show interest in you, but only if their purpose is always good. This is true whether am I whether I am with you or not. So what he's saying right here is he's just going back to saying that you've been influenced. You have been zealously pursued by these legalistic Jews. And the purpose of it wasn't for good. They weren't pursuing you because of some good for you. They were doing it for their own benefit to make disciples that would come after them. And so he says it's good to have people pursue you and want your attention and and for you to be... Uh, sought after like this, but only if it's in a godly way. He says this is a godly, an ungodly uh, way that they've been trying to affect you. They're doing it for selfish reasons, to make disciples after themselves, to build their own ranks, to build their own numbers, etc. And he says this is true. And he says uh, whether I'm with you or not, regardless of how this turns out with me, you need to recognize that this relationship that you have built with these legalistic people is not good. In verse 19, he says, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. And once again, this is bringing up that same issue that we dealt with just a few verses back, where he says, I stand in doubt of you, whether you know I bestowed upon you labor in vain. 
It's talking about this issue. Are they still maintaining their faith in the Lord? And so Paul is praying for them. When he first came and preached the gospel unto them, of course, he interceded for them, interceded that they would receive the gospel, that the blindness of their heart would be removed. He prayed over them, and prayer was a part of his ministry to these people. He says now he's having to go back to the very foundational things and pray once again that Christ be formed in them. Now, this is not talking about the fact that they had lost their salvation, and he's praying that they'd be born again again. There are some people today who believe that, and they believe that every time you sin or do something wrong that you lose your salvation, you've got to pray back through and get born again again. And that simply cannot happen. That is not what Paul is talking about. But he is in doubt about them, as he had just said in previous verses, and he was questioning whether they were going to continue on in their relationship, and so he had had to go back to this intercessory prayer where he's just praying that they would get the foundation truths, faith in the Lord, and not faith in their own performance, not going back to the law. He was just having to pray the basics over them. So basically what he's saying is, I'm having to travail in birth over you once again. I tell you, there's been a lot of teaching about travailing in prayer, and Paul here talks about it. And it's making a comparison, liking it unto, you know, a woman going through the physical birth pains and bringing forth a children, uh, bringing forth a child. And there is a truth here. But I tell you, I believe that it has been taken to an extreme. You know, the Lord used a lot of physical examples and comparisons Uh, But we need to limit our interpretation to what he said about it. Uh, I've heard people take things before and just go to the extreme in some of these examples, and uh, they get way out beyond what the Scripture is teaching. Paul here says that, yes, there is a birth process, and there is a travail. But some people have taken this to where we have to pray, and, and there's some people that travail for 15 years, and they agonize and go through all of these things. There are some people teaching today that nothing can happen except you go through huge amounts of travail and agony. They come up with doctrines that before there could ever be an effective evangelistic effort or anything, that there has to be prayer warriors go in and saturate the place and do all of these things. Now, again, I believe that there's some benefit to that. Please don't misunderstand me. I believe that you can prepare spiritual atmosphere and do some things like that. But I can say this, that there is no scriptural example of anybody sending intercessors into a town before they went to preach. Now, Jesus did send some of his disciples into a town before he came there to announce it. So that was for public relations benefit and to prepare make uh, arrangements, scheduling, and things like that. But you cannot find examples of people going in and praying before. You cannot find the example of Paul having a group of prayer warriors that he shared his innermost secrets with, and they went around and prayed and prepared things. Now, again, am I saying that it's wrong to have people praying for you? No. Is it wrong to have people pray over a crusade or over a meeting? No. And I think it's good if it's done in the proper way. But there are some people preaching that you can't do anything without this intercession, and they just are putting huge amount of money and effort into intercessory prayer prior to the sharing of the Word. They've actually made the prayer more important than the Word, and that is certainly out of balance. People are born again through the incorruptible seed, the Word of God that lives and abides forever. Prayer is not what's changing people and turning them around. It's the Word of God. Prayer is a part. It's like part of the process of softening their heart and other things. But I tell you, you can get out of balance with this. 
Paul is just basically saying that he was praying for them again. And there was a travail. In other words, there was a grief of the Spirit spoken of in Ephesians chapter 5, grieving the Holy Spirit. The Spirit within him was grieved because he was recognizing these people were going back to bondage. And so there was a travail. But there is no indication that this went on for months or weeks. I've actually heard stories. I haven't physically seen this, but I've heard stories of people that when they start interceding for somebody, they have them lay on the floor. And there's been women that have laid on top of men and have actually gone through the um, physical symptoms of having a children, travailing, pushing, and going through this like they're giving spiritual birth. I tell you, that is weird. That's wrong. I don't care who it is. I, I may be... Um, Somebody may criticize me over this, but you just can't convince me that that is a godly thing that you have to do. And there's people teaching that today, and that is not correct. That's inappropriate for a woman to lay on top of a man and go through the motions of having a child. That is inappropriate. It is not godly. That's not God that's leading that kind of stuff. It's foolishness, and the body of Christ needs to wake up. Sure, there is a travailing in prayer. I've got a tape entitled Groaning in the Spirit, and I'll go into detail. I hadn't got time to deal with it here, but just let me say that I think that it is being abused today and taken to an extreme. I'm telling you, beware of it. Yeah, Use your head for something besides a hat rack. Don't let somebody come along and deceive you and bring you into all kinds of weird things in the name of the Lord. Travail in prayer isn't weird. Verse 20 says, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Basically, what he's saying here is that Paul just would really like to be present with these people. He's feeling the constraints of trying to deal with a hard issue, a delicate subject, through a letter. And uh, he's just saying, I'd like to be present with you and to change my voice. In other words, he's been very harsh with them. If he was present, maybe he would have been able to say this in a kinder way. Maybe he would have been able to say it in such a way that nobody would misunderstand. It's not that he's apologizing for anything he said, but he just wants to make sure that it's conveyed in love. And if he was there with no restrictions on him, he could have conveyed it better. And it would answer his questions. He had no He could tell by their reaction. Now, right now, he's got to write a letter and wait months to get a reply. He says, I just want to be with you so that I could, you know, remove the doubts, find out exactly where you are and tell what's going on. Paul now begins to use an allegory to make his point about the law not being the way to relate to God. Verse 21, he says, tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? You know, these people that were advocating keeping all of these commandments, they were just picking and choosing certain things. If they really read the Old Testament law, they would have learned that the Old Testament law even foreshadowed that that it was incomplete, that there was coming a better covenant. And this was done in a number of ways. Back in Romans chapter 3, Paul talked about that even the righteousness of God, which was prophesied and witnessed by all of the Old Testament law and the prophets, The New Testament message of grace is not something that is really new. It's new in its uh, entirety as far as people seeing the fullness of it. But it was foreshadowed 
in the Old Covenant. And there's many ways that this was done. Well, Paul right here begins to use one way. He illustrates this through the two children of Abraham, which are talking about Isaac and Ishmael. And he uses this as an allegory. An allegory is just a figure of speech where it takes some physical thing that people are familiar with and then makes spiritual application to it. And so what this is is a summary of Genesis chapter 16, 17, and 21. And this is about Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and uh, how that they had a son, Isaac, who was by promise. This is the one that was promised in Genesis 15:6, And uh, this promise is written about a lot here in the book of Galatians. And so Isaac was the one that God had intended all along to be Abraham's heir and the one who carried on this line. But in the process, Abraham and Sarah got anxious about uh, seeing this child born. They were getting old, and they didn't have a child yet. And so Sarah came up with the idea of actually having Abraham go into her slave, which was Hagar. She was an Egyptian slave. This is in Genesis 16.1. And Sarah said that if Hagar conceives by you, then I'll raise the child as my own, and maybe that's the way that God will give us this supernatural child. Now, that was Sarah's idea. Abraham, it doesn't show that there was any persuasion needed to get him to go along with this, but it certainly wasn't God's idea. But they went ahead and had a child. That child's name was Ishmael. And for a period of time, 13 years, it looked like, or probably Abraham thought that this was the seed that God was going to give him. But then in the 17th chapter of Genesis, God appears unto Abraham again and tells him that he's going to have a seed by Sarah and that this is the promised seed that he had given him promise about. Abraham immediately comes back and he says, Oh, Lord, what about Ishmael? Oh, that Ishmael may live before me. And the Lord went on to say that he would bless Ishmael also, but Ishmael would not be the promised seed. Isaac would be the promised seed. And what happened was that uh, Sarah's uh, son was born, Isaac. He was the supernatural son. And then uh, Ishmael, who was the seed of Hagar, uh, he mocked Isaac. And when Sarah saw this, Sarah got very upset, and she asked Abraham to cast out Ishmael and his mother, um, Hagar, and disinherit them. And, of course, this grieved Abraham, but he prayed about it, and the Lord said, hearken to what Sarah said. And he says, I'll take care of him, I'll bless him, but the son of the slave woman will not be heir with the son of the promise. And so Abraham uses his story to make an illustration and says that those who are of the law, those who are trying to relate to God by law, are like Ishmael. They're products of the flesh, of self-effort. The law, see, demanded you do this, you do this, you do this. It put all of the responsibility of salvation upon your shoulders. Those who are trying to be justified with God by adhering to some degree of performance are like Ishmael. They're children of the flesh. And it is a natural, physical thing. It is not supernatural. It's not a new birth. It's not being born again. But on the other hand, those who are of grace are like Isaac. They are the children of the promise. And in context, if you go back to the third chapter, he made this very clear. And he ended the third chapter by saying that if you be Christ possessive, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He makes this exact point that any person who comes to God by putting faith in Jesus for their salvation is the true descendant of Abraham.
And so he's saying those who are of grace, who put their faith in what Jesus did for them and received salvation as a gift, these people are comparable to Isaac. They're the true seed of Abraham. But those who are trying to relate to God by law are like the children, uh, Ishmael, the children of the flesh that got cast out. And so what he's doing is using this Old Testament example to illustrate the spiritual truth that he has now been proclaiming about salvation by grace through faith. Now, that's kind of a summary of the whole thing. Let me just go through and read some of these scriptures. In verse 22, it says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. This is talking about Ishmael. But he of the free woman, that's Sarah, was by promise. And that's talking about Sarah's son, Isaac. Which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants. The one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Mount Sinai is where Moses gave the Ten Commandments. And so he's saying that this is like the Old Testament law. And it answers to Jerusalem. In other words, it's now comparable to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Of course, Jerusalem was the city that God had chosen to put his name there, but it had fallen into apostasy. It had totally missed out on the grace of God, and Jerusalem was bound in this legalistic religious system that God never intended. They were relating to God on the basis of this Old Testament law, which the third chapter made it very clear that the law was only a temporary thing to shut us up. Well, they had embraced it as the permanent way of God dealing with people. So Jerusalem... Uh, here is talking about the whole Jewish nation, and it was in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. And that's talking about that the true city of God, the true people of God, are uh, the people of grace. He's talking about this covenant of grace versus the covenant of law. And it's free, and it's the mother of us all. All true believers come from this spiritual Jerusalem. He's using an allegory here. In verse 27, For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry thou that travailest not, for the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. This is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 54. And you'll notice Isaiah 54 follows Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the great passage of Scripture about the atonement of the Lord Jesus. Very powerful, very specific. There's no way that anybody could miss that, talking about the atonement of Jesus. And then right after the atonement of Jesus, it comes on with this Scripture saying, you know, uh, rejoice thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry. What it's talking about is that those who didn't have righteousness on their own and had despaired, of ever being righteous through anything that they ever did can now receive the supernatural righteousness of God. It's like a woman who had no children uh, and was hopeless of ever having any can now supernaturally receive them through the Lord. Well, we had no chance of ever bringing forth this new birth, but now through Jesus it is available unto us. And so he's just quoting this Old Testament scripture to bring into play to show that that those who didn't have any righteousness of their own can now obtain unto the righteousness which is of God by faith. That's the same thing that was said in Romans chapter 9 and the first few verses of chapter 10. In verse 28, it says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Of course, in the Old Testament example, uh, Ishmael made fun and mocked 
uh, Isaac, and because of that, he and his mother Hagar were cast out. In the New Testament, those who are of the law persecute those who are of grace. I tell you, the grace is offensive to people who are trusting in themselves. Religious people who are, are proud of their great holiness and of their accomplishments and are relating to God in, under the deception that they are somebody because they have adhered to certain standards, they are always, always, always going to persecute somebody who stands there and receives everything simply by the grace of God. And that's what he's saying. That's the same way that it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Now, that was Sarah's choice. That's what she said. That was grievous unto Abraham. He wasn't inclined to do it, but as he prayed about it, God said, This is right, and this is what you should do. Now, this wasn't so much God's dealing with Hagar and Ishmael personally, but rather it was done symbolically. It was done for this illustration. God had promised Abraham a child, and God never intended for it to come through some slave woman. He intended for it to come supernaturally when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 91. That's the way that God had it planned all along. Abraham and Sarah got in and kind of got impatient and messed the thing up, but God never deviated from what his plan was, and he said, you need to get rid of this work of the flesh. And I tell you, there's a lot of us that instead of waiting on God and letting God bring forth our miracle and the things that we're believing for supernaturally, we get impatient, we get in, and we produce an Ishmael, something that was totally a product of the flesh, and we suffer for it the rest of our lives. You know, the world today is still suffering because of the Ishmael and Isaac problem. Isaac, of course, is where the Jews came from. Ishmael is where all of the Arabs came from. And all of the Arab and, and Israel conflict that has gone throughout history basically can be traced back to Abraham and Sarah and them not waiting on God. I tell you, the implications of that are just awesome. But God was making a point. He says, this is not the way I said it would be done. I am not deviating from my plan. And, you know, there's people today that just, they're maintaining that they have to have a certain degree of holiness before God will move in their life. Well, they're of Ishmael. They're the old covenant law. And God says, cast them out. This is not the heir. Only those who can relate to God on the basis of faith in what Jesus has done for them, not based on their performance. Those are the only true children of Abraham and children of God. In verse 31, it says, So, so then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And basically, that's what I was just saying. Through faith in Jesus, we become Abraham's children through Isaac. A person who's trying to relate to God on the basis of law is a person who is like Ishmael, and they are not the true heir. They will not inherit the things of God. Boy, these are powerful, powerful statements. You know, as a whole, I believe that the religious world today is like Ishmael. And I'm talking about even the quote-unquote Christian religious world. Many, many Christians are trying to relate to God on the basis of their performance. They feel condemned, and they feel that, how could God ever accept me? How could God ever answer my prayer? How could God ever use me? Because look what I've done. A person who's speaking that way does not understand grace and putting faith in Jesus and relating to God on the basis of grace. In other words, they are like this Old Testament uh, Ishmael instead of Isaac. They are not truly operating in faith in the promise. 
Now, if that sounds strange to any of you, then I encourage you to get before God and pray and let him really reveal some things to you because I tell you, these are powerful truths. And a tremendous amount of the body of Christ today who got born again by putting faith in Jesus for their salvation, they're now trying to relate to God on their own actions and on their own holiness. They have fallen back into legalism just exactly like Paul is talking to the Galatians here. And it's a terrible situation today. It's something that needs to change. I just pray pray to God that he opens up all of our eyes and helps us to understand these truths and to see these powerful truths so that we will become true children of Abraham by faith rather than the children of the flesh who will profit nothing and who ultimately will be cast out. 